Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Victor Madrigal-Borlos. He's a Costa Rican lawyer. He served as a member of the UN Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture, and he continues to be involved in international efforts to support torture victims. But for the focus of our conversation, he's also, importantly, the UN independent expert on protection against violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Earlier this year, he published a report on the subject, and he called for a global ban on conversion therapy. Our federal government here in Canada is moving forward with amendments to the criminal code to give effect to such a ban, and Victor's work is important to highlight why we need both domestic and international action. Victor, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. You, not so long ago in May, issued a report as the independent expert on protection against violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. What is conversion therapy and why does tackling conversion therapy and ending it matter so much? Well, conversion therapy is used in popular language to refer to a very wide scope and uh, a number of practices. Um, My experience as independent expert was profoundly influenced by the fact that since the very few meetings and visits that I carried out, I began to receive testimony of persons who had been subject to practices that were based on the idea that their lives were somehow wrong in some way or another, and that there would be practices that would allow them to change to a state of affairs that would be quote-unquote right. And I therefore wanted to study these practices and to examine my initial understanding that in some cases of testimonies that I had received, they had been particularly harmful to the persons that had been exposed to them. So after significant research that I will be able to describe and that I've registered in my report, I came to the conclusion that it is possible to describe under the term of practices of conversion therapies, all practices having in common two elements. One of them is the idea that the lives of lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, or otherwise gender diverse persons are somehow wrong or disordered or antisocial. And The second element is that it is desirable and possible to change those orientations or identities into conformity with a certain order. The science is clear now that there's no evidence that innate sexual orientation can be changed, but it wasn't so long ago that this was common practice, that most schools within psychology and psychiatry bolstered by that mental disorder classification that you mentioned of of the 1940s to the early 1970s, they operated as providers of conversion therapy. And so not so long ago, this was ingrained practice across societies. Yes, and I think, Nate, that we have to look at the way in which certain systems have enabled stigma and discrimination against LGBTQ and two-spirits persons uh, historically. And of course, I use this expression because I know that this is how communities define themselves in Canada, but um, I would just like to make the precision that of course, this is not a uniform classification around the world. So I may may use other expressions as I go along because 
uh, as I say, I try to always work with the, with, the, with the strongest common denominator. So going to your point, it is true that certain systems have enabled stigma and discrimination, and those systems can be classified typically in three main lines. You have demonization, which is the idea that LGTB lives are somehow sinful in their own nature. You have pathologization, which is the idea that LGTB lies are in a way disordered or ill. And you have criminalization, which is the idea that LGTB lives are somehow antisocial and need to be repressed under criminal standards. Now, we all know that criminalization was one of the infamous heritages of colonialism all around the world, where particularly Victorian legislation and other types of repressive legislation have been expanded and still remain in 69 countries. A staggering 2 billion people live today in environments of criminalization. Pathologization was the inheritance of theories, both in the medical and the psychological field, that created the notion that LGTB lives and sexual orientation and gender identity in particular were the result of either particular experiences in upbringing or the result of certain biochemical circumstances in the person's life. And the the legacy of those approaches has been not only that there's somehow something inferior or wrong with LGTB lives, but also the fact that they could then somehow be corrected. And as you very rightly say, there's absolutely no evidence, we know that nowadays, that this can be the case. But the reality is that this trends, these notions at the medical, psychological, or religious level have carved deep grooves in social consciousness. And the legacy of those approaches are what we now we are fighting. And they translate into very widespread notions that LGTB lives not only need to be corrected, but can be corrected. And I say that it was in the 1940s to 1970s that the scientific community had this so very wrong and and wrong in a very harmful way. But today, it continues to be a very pervasive practice. And there was a report in Canada that noted tens of thousands of Canadians have experienced conversion therapy. But we see this around the world. And, And your report makes clear that there are millions of people around the world that in in dozens of countries that would be subject to conversion therapy. One of the limitations that we have in relation to this is that this is one issue in which data is not gathered systematically. And the obstacles for that are manifold. They include the fact that in some cases, some states simply do not gather data concerning sexual orientation or gender identity. Imagine those 69 states in which criminalization is still the norm. How would you gather data concerning sexual orientation and gender identity? But even in those states where criminalization is not the norm, it is not usual that statistical collection is systematic at a state level. But even in cases where statistical collection would be pursued by the state, you have situations in which conversion therapy is practiced in a very underground kind of structure, because there is an understanding that it is harmful and that it creates damage to persons. 
So all of these factors together create a situation in which it's very, very difficult to get a, an exact idea of how many persons are victims of the practice in a given year or in a particular context. In the United States, the Williams Institute has carried out a survey in which it determined that over 700,000 persons have been subjected to conversion therapy. And of course, you can only imagine that this must be only a small fraction of the persons that actually have indeed been subject to the practice. I can only suspect, given the information that came to me during the preparation of my report, that this is the tip of the iceberg when we look at conversion therapy practices all around the world. And there were some shocking prevailing views today in, in countries around the world in your report. One of the, one fact that stood out to me was that a third of some 1,000 mental health professionals in a study in China said that being gay was a form of mental illness. But, but I want to get to the question of harms because the scientific community has clearly recognized that there's no evidence that innate sexual orientation can be changed. The conversion therapy is a soft way of putting the practice in many respects, given the nature of the harm at stake. There are ranges of, of this practice, some more harmful than others. But, but just how harmful is the practice of conversion therapy? Well, there's two elements in relation to, to this, innate. The first one is, I always take point of departure on the fact that we need to deconstruct even the notion that it would be desirable to change sexual orientation or gender identity, even if it were possible, right? Agreed. Because Agreed. there is absolutely no reason, uh, objectively, in any social interaction or social objective that would tell us that uh, LGTB lives are somehow contrary to valid social objectives. That they're worth less in some fashion has to be dismissed out of hand, I think. Exactly. So that's the first element. And the second thing is, what is it that comes out of these practices? And what we know very specifically is that what we are talking about is practices that include beatings, rape, forced nudity, forced feeding, food deprivation, isolation and confinement, forced medication, verbal abuse, humiliation and electrocution. All of these are typical methods to implement practices of conversion therapy and which I think intuitively let us know that we need to presume that they are conducive to psychological and physical pain and suffering. Now, one of the elements that I took as evidence in my report is the report of the Independent Forensic Expert Group, a very highly regarded group of forensic experts coming from all over the world and from all legal and cultural traditions. And they, they classify and describe the practices of conversion therapy as inherently humiliating, demeaning, and discriminatory. And they explain that there is a combined effect of feeling powerless, and the extreme humiliation that generates shame, guilt, self-disgust, worthlessness, and of course, all of these factors deriving in damaged self-concept and enduring personality changes. Nate, what this provokes is real harm in persons, long-lasting harm, which includes the loss of self-esteem, 
real situations of anxiety, depressive syndrome, social isolation, difficulties in intimacy, self-hatred, shame and guilt, sexual dysfunction, suicidal ideation, suicidal attempts, all of which correspond to general frameworks of what we've come to understand as post-traumatic stress disorder, which of course are situations where people suffer enormously and that are not at all compatible with our duty to support persons in their quest for happiness. You reference specific cases in Ecuador, accounts of lesbian women being shackled, beaten, solitary confinement. Corrective rape is referenced in in the report, which is tragic and, and horrifying. In Mozambique, you reference people being subjected to exorcisms, but even the the so-called sort of softer kinds of conversion therapy, when they bought them out in this attempt to erase one's identity and to demean one's identity, say there is something wrong with you because of who you are, that in and of itself is inherently discriminatory, as you say, and will necessarily have deep and negative mental health impacts. Yes, and I I want to explore something that you said, Nate, that both puzzles and really motivates my work, which is, I wonder if there is objectively objectively certain things that one can qualify at the outset as more grave or softer when speaking of human suffering, because we know that suffering and damage usually depends on very personal circumstances of the victim, right? Right. People have different degrees of resilience. People have different circumstances. So it is very hard to establish at the outset what may be the degree of suffering that a particular practice will provoke on a person. And on this, I think that we can describe things that we need to assume that they are deeply harmful and that, frankly, just because of the level of inhumanity and cruelty that they represent in and of themselves, they should be considered torture, such as rape, disgustingly called corrective, in you know certain narratives around conversion therapy. But then I hesitate to consider more seemingly benign forms of conversion therapy as less harmful at the outset. Because as you very rightly say, it might be that the loss of self-worth and the loss of identity notions that come with certain rather seemingly unobstructive forms of psychotherapy could be felt very, very strongly and as very painful by certain persons. The solution that I came with in my report as a legal theory on this is the following. I think that all practices of conversion therapy are in and of themselves cruel, inhuman, and degrading. Why? Because, first of all, they rely on the notion that LGBTQ2 spirit lives are somehow inferior to others. So they are degrading because they provoke harm. We have evidence of that. So they are cruel. And because they ignore the basic reality of the humanity of sexual orientation and gender identity and the diversity of it. So in my view, they are inhuman. I create that theory to explain 
that they should be all considered cruel and human and degrading treatment, which of course is prohibited under international human rights law and under domestic law by derivation, but that they must also be seen as suspect of creating environments conducive to torture. And that judges and police officers and that justice sector operators have a duty to examine and study claims of conversion therapy as suspect of being conducive to torture. Why? Because it may be that in certain cases, you end up with a finding of saying, well, this practice, which was cruel, inhuman, and degrading torture, did not provoke in the individual the sort of long-lasting effect and suffering that comes with torture, but you open the possibility that individual dimensions of damage be assessed in relation to this. And to me, that is very important. And in the report, you identify three different natures of conversion therapy, psychotherapy, working through past experiences, and and electroshock therapy might be akin to that as well in an extreme case, medical hormone or steroid therapies, and then faith-based interventions. Obviously different depending upon the country, but do you see the the medical elements falling away and and, and it's predominantly faith-based at this time, or it's still very much pervasive even in medical communities across the world? All around the world, I am afraid that I see all approaches actually being utilized to a certain degree or other in different contexts. Let me tell you something about those approaches, uh, Nate, that may be of interest to your listeners. I try to establish a difference between approaches that have proven their worth when implemented to socially valuable objectives from other approaches that may not be excused and should never be used under any circumstances for anything. And this is how I can draw a distinction between psychotherapy, which is a valuable approach for certain objectives, and rape, which is never an approach for anything, clearly, right? So I established that difference and I focus my study on the approaches that may be valid under certain circumstances. And that, as you rightly say, are the psychotherapy approaches, the medical approaches, and the faith-based approaches all of which may be very commendable and useful for an individual quest for happiness, you know, in a particular setting and in a particular set of objectives. And they're all, therefore, used and usable in different contexts. The problem is when they are coupled with the, in my view, absolutely unnecessary and invalid objective to coerce people to change their sexual orientation and or their gender identity, and they are coupled with the fake assumption that those can be changed. And as you rightly point out, I had evidence of the implementation of the approaches everywhere. And unfortunately, I can tell you that the remnants of the pathologization, which was officially sanctioned, officially accepted by the World Health Organization for so many years, has carved, as I say, deep grooves in the medical profession everywhere around the world. You have the case of China, where that survey of a 1,000 practitioners yielded such a significant proportion of practitioners thinking that homosexuality is a mental illness. But then I can tell you that in my visits to Georgia and to Ukraine, for example, in the Caucasus, I clearly obtained evidence that the medical professions 
still consider certain forms of gender identity as a pathology and operate accordingly. They demand certain psychiatric evaluations from trans persons, for example, in order to accept legal recognition of gender identity. And the objectives are irredeemable. The effect is significant harm, often to children. What's the legislative response? In Canada, we've seen a bill recently to ban conversion therapy. That's the answer that you would like to see around the world? I have called for a ban on conversion therapy all around the world. I'm calling for that ban based upon the legal finding that the practices of conversion therapy are cruel, inhuman, and degrading inherently. And therefore, I consider them as prohibited under international human rights law. Now, the means that are used to enact such a ban are, in my view, very much tied up to what may work in a particular context. We all know that states carry out their business with different tools and through different branches of government. You have, of course, judiciary, you have legislative, and you have executive. Certain states have carried out very significant actions of fighting conversion therapy through public policy. Ecuador is a good example in relation to that, a widespread process of mapping places of conversion therapy and withdrawing accreditation by the Ministry of Health was carried out 10 years ago. And that, in my view, was a very effective way to combat conversion therapy at that time in Ecuador. So that was a public policy executive type action. You then have countries, and you're mentioning, of course, the legislative drive right now in Canada, that are legislating on the matter under different type of models, be it total ban or partial bans or victim-based bans. I give different examples in my report about the approaches that have been taken. And finally, in other cases, it is the judiciary that actually has moved forward and receiving claims of conversion therapy as forms of torture have operated on the notion of non-repetition using emblematic cases to then guide the public policy in relation to ending repetition of cases of conversion therapy. So you have all of the arms of the state, of government, that can be actually implicated in fighting this practice, just like any other human rights issue. I had read in advance of speaking to you that there are religious organizations quite opposed to the ban of conversion therapy, and they are already reinventing using different language. They're using different terminology to say, well, it's not what you're opposed to. It's something different. And based on their religious ethos, they, they do think that in many cases that it is a sin, as you say, to be gay and or to be trans and, and, and or bisexual. And so they are trying to already, in some ways, find ways around the solution that you're proposing, which would be a, a, a ban on conversion therapy. Well, I think that here it's important, Nate, to draw some distinctions. The first one is that my mandate is a mandate of protection from violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And let's, let's agree that everyone in the world has a sexual orientation and a gender identity. Everyone in the world has those traits. They are most human traits to have. And they are usually traits that are quite important in our quest for happiness and human fulfillment. 
So at the outset, I cannot rule out the reality that people will come to the mandate and say, how can you assure that your actions are also protective of those persons that may wish to relate to their desire in a particular way? And going deep into that argument, I need to relate to those persons who actually may feel that their experienced same-sex desire is not compatible with their wish to pursue their life as heterosexual or their desire to identify in a gender different than they were assigned at birth may go contrary to their wish to experience life as cisgendered, right? right? So I'm absolutely clear on the fact that there is that very important part of the community, population, persons that the mandate has really to embrace and to answer to. I'm mindful and respectful, as I say in my report, of those existential dilemmas that individuals experience between their deeply felt emotion and desire and their personal uh, convictions as to what is a desirable norm in relation to their behavior and that they may wish to align their behavior to that and that they may wish to avail themselves of mechanisms of support in relation to that. All of that is absolutely fine and I believe it to be a very desirable social objective. In fact, Nate, this is all about the freedom of persons not to be bound to particular ways of living because of the particular genitalia that they were born with. It's all about spaces of freedom. But there's a big however there. And the big however is in those processes of self-determination and addressing existential dilemmas, people can avail themselves of mechanisms of support and they may be psychological, medical, or religious, but based on overwhelming evidence that is available to me, there are two aspects that I believe are unacceptable. First, those approaches cannot claim that they achieve conversion because there's zero evidence that they will be able to achieve that objective. And secondly, they may not proclaim that conversion is a desirable social objective. As long as that is met, I believe that these mechanisms will operate in a field of personal freedom that is absolutely acceptable in the way that we coexist in society, bearing different perceptions as to what is desirable and acceptable. And so as a matter of that freedom and personal autonomy, when we see the Canadian legislation that clearly prohibits any conversion therapy upon children and clearly prohibits any conversion therapy that in any way coerces an individual, those are rightly prohibited, but there is still space for an adult to consent to conversion therapy, I suppose. You see, this is where the this is where kind of the crux of the matter lies, I would believe. I don't think you can consent to truly human and degrading treatment. Right. That's a good point. So as long as you are under the impression that the treatment that you're going to be suffering effectively achieves conversion. And as long as you are under the impression that it is something that society is requiring you to do, 
I would really question to what extent that can be considered as informed consent. You see what I mean? So I would place it differently. I would say if I, as a cisgendered male, wish to remain cisgender and wish to align my behavior not only to being cisgendered, but to obtain mechanisms of support, not to act on my same-sex desires. And those mechanisms can be as valid and as nurturing as prayer or psychotherapy or medical approaches. As long as I understand that there is no evidence that I will achieve conversion of those desires and that I am understanding and in the context that that is not a socially prescribed desirable goal, then I believe that I'm operating in freedom. But that's not what conversion therapy is about. Right. What conversion therapy is about brings at the outset advice of informed consent, which is, on the one hand, the belief that there is something wrong with your life and the being compelled to change it because otherwise society will punish you somehow. And second, that it can be achieved both of which are, in my view, what constitutes cruel and human integrating treatment. And because it is inherent, then you would say the clearer and most obvious path would be to have a blanket ban even for those that might consent, because we don't allow people to consent to inherently cruel and, and humane activities. I think that what, what you can have validly existent in any society is the mechanisms of support for persons who wish to align right. their behavior to a particular behavioral norm and that would like to avail themselves of support mechanisms to do that. I think that is what freedom is, Nate. But the second that you are compelled to do that or under the belief that there is any kind of evidence that 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 will convert your sexual orientation or your gender identity, I think that we're getting into a space that is deeply questionable from human rights perspectives. And my last question, the definition of conversion therapy in our proposed law says for greater certainty, the definition does not include a practice, treatment, or service that relates to a person's gender transition or to a person's exploration of their identity to its development. That latter component makes a good deal of sense to me. It was flagged by by one individual who in early 2000s, she was transitioning and she was required as part of that, you know, healthcare approved transition, she was required to participate in psychotherapy. And that psychotherapy in and of itself was conversion therapy. And so I I worry a little bit about providing any space or loophole where you have people with lived experience say, I lived through this loophole, please close it. Well, I, it would be very hard to, to know exactly what kind of session or practice this person underwent without having the specifics. But what I can tell you is there's also another aspect, which is legal recognition of gender identity should not be subject to pathologizing measures. And so it should be considered that it is not the opinion of a medical or psychological expert whether a person is able to define their own gender identity. It should be that it's part of the freedom of the individual to relate to certain gender expressions and certain gender aspects, what makes that difference. And therefore, I would place more within that aspect that that requirement of psychological 
psychosocial treatment or psychological treatment, I would place it more under the prohibition of pathologizing provisions for legal recognition of gender identity. Right. My last question is, here in Canada, we have a legislative effort at the federal level that follows from actual legislative efforts at various provincial levels, and we've seen city councils act on this already as well. If you say 60-some-odd countries see these practices, do you see a, a shift in the conversation internationally? Do you see other countries coming to some reckoning to say, we can't allow this to happen here, and, and we, need, we also need to take action? Oh, yes. It is a, the, the traction that this issue has internationally right now is an evidence of the fact that providing visibility to violence and discrimination in the way that it occurs on the everyday life of lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, two-spirit persons, otherwise gender diverse persons, making that visible, Nate, creates enormous traction in the way states understand that they need to move forward. And I can tell you it's Canada, it's Germany, it's the Netherlands, it's France, countries in Latin America, Argentina, Costa Rica, Ecuador. There are huge discussions in relation to this. There's other contexts where the discussion is going to be more intricately linked to other issues such as criminalization. And of course, the discussion will be of a different nature but it's a discussion that is happening everywhere. And I see that traction. And of course, Canada is part of the world. And in that sense, it, it is creating that part, that, that sort of synergy at international level. And it's something that I'm very delighted to see. Well, I'm glad to hear that Canada is helping to lead those efforts. I'm, I'm glad that we're moving forward this legislation. And I'm very much thankful for your efforts and your advocacy and your report, because as you say, making this issue visible is one way of making sure that years from now, we'll look back and say, we've ensured that we've protected people and, and we've guaranteed human rights in a more serious way. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Nate. Take care. Take care. Remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca and please do leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing on your platform of choice.